rotates. 360 degrees. High high. 360 degrees. High high. 306. 306. 360 degrees. High high. All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. This show is written, produced, and broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the Bay Area. On tonight's show, we speak with Protap Chatterjee, author of the nonfiction graphic novel Verax, the true history of whistleblowers, drone warfare, and mass surveillance. As part, as, K- as part of KPFA's Summer Fun Drive, we at Full Circle are offering this journalistic graphic novel as a gift to listeners who donate to KPFA. We'll be your hosts, Mari Nakagawa. And I'm Free Will and Franklin. Keep it locked right here on KPFA. Good evening, everyone, and again, welcome to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley and kpfa.org. Tonight, we aim to shed light on some of the murky topics of drone warfare and mass surveillance. Our guest is Protap Chatterjee, author along with illustrator Khalil Bandib of the graphic novel Verax, released in 2017. On Tuesday, Frank and I sat down with Chatterjee to discuss his book. Here's the first part of that conversation. We are joined by Protap Chatterjee, author of the 2017 graphic novel Verax, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance. Protap is a prize-winning investigative journalist, author of Halliburton's Army and Iraq, Inc., and is the executive director of Corp Watch here in the Bay Area. Protap is also a former host and producer at KPFA, and he joins us in studio. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Mari. So I loved this book, getting into it. I assumed it would be a mix of fiction and embellished nonfiction, but what you find is some really hard-hitting journalism and analysis. Reading it almost felt like watching a documentary. It is actually just like a documentary because it's what's often called a graphic novel, but it is a work of journalism. It is the story of drones, mass surveillance, seen partly through my eyes as somebody reporting on it. And the other pieces were taken from transcripts, video. It's almost all real conversations, correct? Yes. All the material you see in it, is none of it is made up. It is actually stuff that happened. Many things happened as I saw them. And in the book, I go to Paris, I go to Pakistan, I go to New York, various other places. And I talk to people and interview them. So you're seeing actually what happened in my life. But then again, in order to explain this, Myself and my co-author, Khalil Bendib, who is also host here at uh, KPFA, have numerous conversations to talk about and to explain the technology. And then we use, you know, visual metaphors to describe and explain these things. So that is almost like a graphic that might accompany a um, newspaper article. Mm -hmm. So you're a seasoned investigative reporter. You've authored books based on your research and investigations. Why a graphic novel? Why was this the medium you chose to tell the story? This was actually Khalil's idea, not mine. He and I have collaborated for many years. So 
he's the cartoonist for Corp Watch, and so we probably produced 100 cartoons together. So he approached me, and I was a little unsure because I actually had no idea what a graphic novel was. I mean, obviously, as a kid, I'd read comics, but I was not familiar with the medium. And eventually I realized it was no different from, like, writing a movie script or a play, and I've worked with people in Hollywood and that sort of thing, and so they've explained to me, you know, the the three-act structure. So we try to follow that and to use the novel uh, structure, uh, the storytelling structure, so that people would get drawn into it. Now, the difficulty of that, with that, of course, is the fact that this is real life. And so, therefore, even if you have an act one, an act two, and an act three of a protagonist, you have, you know, a sort of exciting conclusion or whatever. We didn't stray from the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that made it, you know, a little more complicated. We also tried to stick mostly to my life. That was a choice that was made later in the evolution of this book. Originally, I was not in the book. But then uh, Khalil and the editor uh, both felt that the story would be stronger if I was in it telling the story, which I was sort of a little nervous about. But also partly because we were trying to marry two different issues, drones and mass surveillance. And to this day, most people see them as separate. Particularly after Edward Snowden, people think of mass surveillance as something the U.S. government is doing to its own citizens, right? And people are worried and they're concerned about what might be happening and whether or not people are listening to them. They're worried about what Silicon Valley is doing. They see that as wholly different from what's happening in Pakistan and Yemen, where there are these robotic aircraft dropping bombs on quote-unquote terrorists. But it is actually the same technology, prone to the same errors, run by the same uh, government agencies, and one feeds off of each other. Again, we're speaking with Prothap Chatterjee, author of the graphic novel Verax, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance. This is Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA and kpfa.org. I'm Mari Nakagawa with Frank Sterling, and right now we're going to go to an excerpt from Verax narrated by our very own First Voice Apprentices. This is Chapter One from Verax. Mass surveillance had been on my mind for a while. Most people worry about being watched. My thing was watching the watchers. But that isn't an easy story to tell. Editors like smoking guns, dead bodies, sensational stuff. Ian Overton was no different. What turned him on was undercover reporting with hidden cameras, exposing dastardly misdeeds. All I had so far was a story about software programs. I knew it was going to be a tough sell. Not another one of your wild goose chases, I hope. Julian Assange of WikiLeaks would like to brief us on a new investigative project. It's on surveillance contractors. Sounds interesting. Let me read over the material. A few days later, Julian arrived at our London offices with several other reporters who were also keen to collaborate with him. Welcome, everybody. I'm Julian Assange, WikiLeaks Editor-in-Chief. Sarah Harrison, WikiLeaks. Sari Horowitz, Washington Post. Prothap Chatterjee, Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Laura Poitras, Filmmaker. Stefania Marizzi Lespreso. Some of you have come from New York and Washington and others from Rome and Berlin. 
You've all seen our leaked U.S. military cables from Afghanistan and Iraq. I promise that you will not be disappointed with our latest set of documents. What you will find is breathtaking, top-secret, classified briefings by government contractors who are selling technologies to hack into our phone and any computer. These companies are able to store our data for the rest of eternity. We have named this project the Spy Files. This shadowy world of surveillance contractors was recently thrust into the limelight during the Arab Spring on March 5, 2011 at the Egyptian Ministry of the Interior in Cairo. The crowd swarmed past the police and took over the building. Inside, they uncovered evidence of the Mubarak regime's reign of terror, a prison cell, a cache of weapons stamped Made in USA, and even a concealed love nest. Flipping through these files, labeled top secret, a doctor by the name of Mustafa Hussein stumbled upon a suspicious item. Gamma? What is this gamma? Gamma is an Anglo-German surveillance company. They sell hacking technology to repressive regimes like the Mubarak government in Egypt. What does the equipment do? Mustafa Hussein. It's called a Trojan horse, a piece of software you implant in someone else's device. Ahmed Garbeya from the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights. To control it and steal from it, it also enables identity fraud. So that's how Mubarak regime was tracking and keeping a lid on any and all opposition? The flip side of the internet revolution. Like any major industry, these companies have conventions to sell their products. Many of the companies whose brochures you just got are planning to attend Millipol in Paris next month. What's Millipol? It stands for military and police. Convention participants are government buyers from all over the world in the market for guns, riot control equipment, and not least, intelligence gathering tools. With the help of these classified briefings, you can confront the companies directly. All we ask is that you credit WikiLeaks in your reporting as the source of the material. Where did you get these documents? That, as always, is our trade secret. We work with whistleblowers who leak information to us in the public interest to expose wrongdoings by powerful forces such as national governments. These documents are uploaded to us anonymously. We don't know the sources ourselves. You're listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. Tonight we're speaking with Protap Chatterjee, author of the graphic novel Verax, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance. I want to give a big shout out to my co-host Freewill and Franklin for mixing those dramatic readings. He's mm-hmm. a master. I have such a great time working with him, with you. Thank you, thank you. So for a donation tonight of $120 or for 12 monthly installments of $10, we would love to send you this dope piece of journalism, Verax. Verax is Latin for truth teller. And our whole goal here as first voice media makers, apprentices at KPFA, is to create change by telling our stories. KPFA would not be the institution it is today without this apprenticeship program. We were born out of struggle, sit-ins and support by staff like Jim Bennett, 
Michael Yoshida, and our founder, Norman Jayo. They demanded that women and people of color and women of color get access to these airwaves, that this station practice what it preaches, because for so long that was not the case. We've brought truth to the station, to these airwaves, and it's our pleasure to share with you. So we hope you support us. Yes, yes. Hope you can support us. Again, we want everyone that can to go to kpfa.org and make a no, uh, make a donation that you're able to. But for $120, you can get this excellent graphic novel, Verax, created by two highly respected and knowledgeable journalists and KPFA producers, Protop Chatterjee, formerly of Apex Express and the founder of Terra Verde, one of my favorite shows, and also Khalil Bendib of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, another awesome show right here on KPFA. The number to dial if you want to call is 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And to support truth-telling here at KPFA, if you can donate online, which is preferred by the station, the place to go is kpfa.org. This graphic novel is pure journalism mixed with the story of Protop's travels, interviews, and conversation. Conversations. This is art and information, and that is a big part of KPFA and the Pacifica Network. Also, whistleblowers, drones, mass surveillance. We bring you this information here at KPFA. So if you are able to show your support at this time, please do so. Because when you donate during this program full circle, it shows that you support not only KPFA, but this unique training program that's been a major part of this station for the past 30 years. So thank you to all who have donated. We do appreciate it. It keeps the lights on and this historic roof over our heads. So let's get back now to the interview with Verax author Potap Chatterjee. Up next, he explains the often mystifying mechanics of mass surveillance. Much of the public, myself included, have a hard time understanding the mechanics of mass surveillance. A few days ago, I asked folks on social media to send us their questions for you. By the way, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at First Voice Media. And the responses ranged from, I don't know much about mass surveillance except that it scares me, to, do you mean what they have in the UK? surveillance cameras on every street. So the term mass surveillance, like the term drones, is really kind of more a popular term. And it is obviously used by activists. It is not used by the government. It is most certainly not used by the companies that manufacture these uh, technologies. So, for example, in the surveillance industry, they call it the LI industry, the lawful interception industry. And in drones, they call them unmanned aerial vehicles. And they're both trying to convey something, right? So when you use the term lawful interception, the idea is this is used by law enforcement agencies. And they make it very clear that they only sell to government agencies, that I can't buy this technology as a journalist to spy on people. And in fact, that's not really true. The same technology is available for you to check up on your children to see, you know, where they're going on their cell phones, you know, the friend finder technology, whatever. It is essentially the same thing, but they market it differently. And... um, in the drone business, the reason they call it the unmanned aerial vehicles is they want to make it sound like a really cool robotic technology. When in fact, these drones are not flying themselves. They're mm-hmm. flown by vast crews of 180 people. And what the military uses, which is actually probably the most uh, accurate term, is remotely piloted aircraft. These are regular aircraft. They're piloted by a number of people. But it doesn't sound quite as threatening as the word drone 
or quite as sexy as the word unmanned aerial vehicle, you know. So these are the same technologies. They are, at the end of the day, it is really about finding information from a big pool of data. So you gather the data and then you analyze that data, right? But the question is, what data have you collected and how are you analyzing it? So the U.S. government believed the best way to do this was to gather everybody's information and keep it in a secure place so they could go back, look into the past, right? Because they would like to be minority report. They would like to be able to predict and to listen to people's thoughts. But of course, you can't really listen to people's thoughts. But you can because of the era we live in, you can actually monitor their phone calls and their emails and their text messages and their Instagram. And that vast body of data is actually a place from which they assume you can draw good intelligence. It's not actually true. There's a real fundamental flaw with this kind of thinking. But it is the only thing they have available to them, right? The government, while they claimed they were not doing this, in fact, they were maintaining this buffer of three days of all our information to be able to go back through it. I mean, it is so voluminous that there are no servers in the world that could contain all the information all the time. So they keep, let's say, the metadata, right? Uh, the most important thing they're looking for is not necessarily the content of your phone conversation, but who you're talking to, right? They want to be able to build patterns. And it's really built around this concept of trying to reduce what we do as human beings into a, a set of what we describe in the book as vectors, right? Mm -hmm. you, want to, you want to look at the human being going from point A to point B. You want to see their phone calls. You want to be able to map it. Of course, the thing is human beings cannot be reduced to vectors. Any two human beings raised in the same house will do things differently. There may be eerie parallels between them, but they are going to make different choices in their lives from what they eat to what they do. And so... The idea that by putting all this information in one place, we can actually derive knowledge and predict is problematic. But the government, in order to do that, or at least to get somewhere close to that, wants to figure out ways to get all that information. But it is exactly the same thing that Facebook is doing when they're gathering our data and trying to figure out what it is we might want to buy, right? Do you think Facebook is even more accurate? They gather more data. I would not say they're more accurate. And recently, well, a few years ago, right after Snowden came out, I was at a talk at Stanford University where the head of the NSA said, you think what we do is bad? You should see what Facebook and Twitter and Silicon Valley is doing. And they're right, actually. The government has only access to so much. And of course, the government can get access to Facebook and Apple servers and they routinely request that kind of data. And that's where, of course, it is really insidious. But the pioneers in this are really kind of, in, in some ways, Silicon Valley, because we've given them our information. And that's kind of the problem, right? Um, sure, the government has figured out how to fly aircraft over people in uh, Pakistan, which Amazon doesn't do yet. They're mm -hmm. starting to do that. Sorry, not Amazon, but Google. They're flying balloons over Kenya right now to provide internet. But that will also allow them to figure out where people are and what they're doing and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it is very valuable information. And ostensibly, it is a private technology, 
but for public good. But mm-hmm. in reality, of course, they're going to have access to a lot more information and purely because we allow them access to it. Yeah, willingly. it's like a continuation of the trend of giving up certain rights for more, maybe even comfort. Right. It's funny, yeah, a lot of people are worried about the government having access to our information, but a lot of it is accessible by private companies like Cambridge Analytica we just saw. So at the time of the Snowden revelations, I remember everyone was concerned with personal security. Is the government spying on us, reading our emails, is putting the tape on the camera on your laptop, actually do anything? But you connect these concerns of personal security with a larger picture. What is that? So the larger picture is the war on terror, quote unquote, or the war of terror, as a friend of mine uh, likes to call it. So the drone program was to go where cell phone recordings were not going to be good enough or or landline or satellite phone recordings were not enough. So, And they put the same technology under the same cameras that are used in supermarkets, you know, or a different version of them are put on these planes that are flown 24 hours a day over, let's say, Waziristan. And the idea is they gather that information and they go through it and they analyze it in the same way we would analyze, they would analyze information from our Skype conversations or our, our Facebook posts or some such thing. And it is astonishingly the main way they use to kill people. And that is where I think this becomes more than just worried about Big Brother to actually realizing that this is a very dangerous and problematic technology. Even Barack Obama himself has actually stood up and said, we killed innocent civilians and we're sorry. So it is clear there are problems with this technology and this method of surveillance. Protop, you're kind of getting into what I was curious about, which is this this idea of the signature strike, you know, where they they don't know who they're killing sometimes, but what they're doing is they're monitoring their behavior. Okay, well, this guy, he went here. Uh, we know this might be a bad place. And then he went over here. I mean, people hear these terms like signature strike or devil tap or bug splats, all these drone terminology. So can you kind of explain the signature strike and how that works and how we use it? Sure. In drone warfare, the idea of uh, signature strikes and double tap, both of which go together, is the idea of tracking people based on their actions, looking for sort of a pattern of intelligence that might lead you to uh, find somebody who's involved in uh, militant activity, terrorist activity, or whatever. Oftentimes, because of the resolution of these cameras, you can't actually see the people in detail. And it's actually very hard to spot an individual from 10,000 feet up, no matter how high quality your uh, resolution is. So what they're looking for is, is they're building models in which they're looking for these people and they're trying to see where they go. And if they see a group of people uh, working together all the time carrying weapons, they see them as potential militants. Now, of course, the, the problem with this model is that, forget about in the U.S. where lots of people carry guns, in countries like Pakistan and Yemen, it has been part of the culture for hundreds of years. So what they're trying to do is look at people with guns monitor them and use that as evidence if they're close to a place where they think something bad might happen to hone in on them and then they take out all the people that are involved in what they see as this threat activity the problem with doing that is that of course you might pick up you know random individuals who happen to be at that site just for unknown reasons Uh, the, the the terminology that the fbi used once is They call it Pizza Hut cases, 
When you're doing a signature strike, you're looking for patterns of, you're looking basically for commanders. You're looking for people who may be at the center of an operation. So what the FBI did was they would listen to conversations, they, they would look at people and they would say, okay, these people are all meeting or talking to each other. They're all going to the central location. And eventually the FBI discovered the problem with that theory is the place that people really call most often is Pizza Hut or a pizza place, right? Because they're looking for takeout pizza. And so what appear in the United States as hubs of inequity, inequity, sorry, turned out to be places that people are just picking up food. So this is the problem with relying on data, is data can very often be misleading. And so the same thing is true of signature strikes. When you're looking at patterns of people involved in carrying guns, going to certain places, there may be very innocent reasons for that. You know, they may be going to meet their religious advisor, you know, the local mullah, somebody you meet with on a regular basis, as you might meet your priest or you might meet your doctor. It is not enough to use that information. But because the U.S. government doesn't have enough information, they're relying on informants in the community who often have vendettas and are getting paid for this information, and also on the analysis by pilots sitting half a world away who don't speak the language, who are looking for what they assume is a pattern of violence. But their knowledge of this is really based on either video games or nothing, right? They mm -hmm. have no understanding of the world on the other side of uh, the world. I mean, think about it this way. If in the city of Berkeley there was a series of murders, right? And we wanted to figure out which individual was involved in those murders. Will we allow a group of people, let's say in Inner Mongolia, who don't speak English, to sit at desks and watch from cameras 10,000 feet up with low resolution and decide who among the 100,000 people live in Berkeley is the murderer? I think they would fail at the task. But that is essentially what we are doing when we turn over these drones to young people in here in California, not so far from us, at the Beale Air Force Base in the Sierras, in Nevada, in New Mexico, in South Dakota, all over the country. And we're saying, solve a murder. Tell us who's guilty. And then not only are you going to track that person, you're then going to bring in an aircraft and kill that person. This is the problem with the technology that we are using it it cannot be accurate and the thing is the the uh, the picture that we didn't draw in the book that i wanted to draw was this this old joke of a of a drunk who has lost his keys and is searching for it at night under you know a street lamp and uh somebody comes up to him and says what are you looking for he says my keys and so this first person joins him and they can't find it then the second person joins him and the third person joins him and finally they're like are you sure you dropped it here? He said, oh, no, 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 I dropped it over there. <laughs> but this is the only place with light. Well, that is essentially what we're doing. We are watching the places that we have access to. And therefore, we're using that to build our knowledge of terrorism. Well, drones actually don't fly everywhere. They don't fly in any place that is wet and has a lot of cloud cover. So if the terrorists are not in Waziristan, and of course, who would stay in Waziristan you know, or Yemen, if you knew we were being followed by drone, you would go somewhere else. You would go to Karachi, which is a hot, humid, urban place where drones cannot enter the airspace because they would likely be, uh, be involved in um, crashes. They would likely, you know, hit civilian aircraft. 
place where you cannot track people because there are too many people in a small area and a place where it rains all the time and drones can't take off. Drones were invented, really, military drones were invented in California. They were invented largely in Southern California by a company called General Atomics. And what California has in common with Yemen and Waziristan is the fact that we have very little rain. We have vast expanses of terrain, deserts, where you can fly a drone for many hours. So what works here in the deserts is not what works in the cities of California and most certainly will not work in remote places or even in places where you really want to track people. They don't really work in Baghdad and Karachi. They work in the desert. But if you're smart, you don't stay there. Why would you stay there when you know there's a drone buzzing overhead? You would go someplace else. Mm -hmm. So by default, they, uh, they don't work. Which is why you have thousands of civilians killed unnamed civilians for every, you know, 10 or 40 um, so targeted people? There's a, a passage in the book where we talk about the fact that this one particular person was being tracked by U.S. intelligence. Actually, they were tracking a number of people, some of whom uh, were never identified, some of whom were killed on the third attempt. And I think there was 17 people they were tracking, and they killed a 1,000 people before they got to them. So, there is a lie that the Obama administration put out that said, you know, well, maybe between 0 and 4% innocent. Most of them are, that we killed, we had precise information on. That is completely untrue. If you set aside even the legal idea that people are innocent until they're proven guilty, the fact that they had no opportunity to defend themselves, go before a jury or a judge or provide evidence, these people killed based on suspicion through these uh, signature strikes. That's why a thousand people died in the search for 17. But even those 17, the question is really, I think from a legal perspective, is, is deeply problematic. You cannot just kill somebody because you, th you think they're guilty. You need to provide them with the ability to defend themselves. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA. You just heard an excerpt from the graphic novel Verax, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance by Protap Chatterjee and Khalil Ben-Deeb. Sorry, that was actually not an excerpt. That was just Protap, uh, our interview with Protap. So uh, tonight we are offering Verax, the graphic novel, as a thank you gift to you folks listening. As many of you know, KPFA is entirely listener-supported. We take no corporate donations. We're also public radio. But I want to distinguish a little between the work we do at KPFA from other public media and, and or so-called progressive outlets. That's true because we are very different in many ways. Many of us do not claim to be unbiased because we do have a side, a side that is mostly denied access to the airwaves. Now, does that mean that we cannot report unbiasedly? No, it means that we want to get these marginalized voices on the air so that they could be heard and you could decide. We want to bring the victims of drone strikes, drone pilot whistleblowers, not the general and the talking heads that boast of the accuracy and the killing power of these machines. We also want to get the parents and family of people killed by the police, not the police spokesperson that will seek to justify the most obvious wrong. Please, if you can, at this moment, take a moment to donate and get yourself a copy of this unique style of journalism, the graphic novel Verax. 
The place to go if you're online is kpfa.org. If you want to call, the number is 1-800-439-5732. And that comes out to 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Yeah, I think there's a great analogy about um, the responsibility of journalists and so-called objective journalism. It goes, if someone says it's raining and another person says it's dry, it's not your job to quote them both. Your job is to look out the window and find out which is true. And that's what I think we do at KPFA. And of course, at the apprenticeship program here at Full Circle, we don't need to look outside the window uh, to see if it's raining. We're standing in the rain. So again, the number to dial is 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA to support truth-telling here at KPFA. If you donate online, which is preferred by the station, the place to go is kpfa.org. So let's get back to our talk with Protop Chatterjee. Can you talk about what this does when the U.S. goes in and drops the signature strikes and then all of a sudden they realize they didn't get their target, but what they might have hit was a wedding or what they might have hit was um, some innocent people farming. What does this do to the people that are left on the ground as a sort of recruitment tool, an anti-American sentiment that derives from all this innocence of being killed? Well, the problem with using drones overhead for long periods of time is they instill terror in the people below, even without firing a single thing. The fact that there is a drone overhead, and even if it only fires one missile, you know that it is armed, and therefore you know that if you're out on the road, or even in your own home, a missile would, could come without warning. And the only time you know that you're safe is when it's cloudy, when the drones can't fly. Uh, the moment it's a bright, sunny day, you're scared because you know there could be drones. But here's one of the most problematic things, I think, uh, that it doesn't get talked about a lot. It has a particularly large impact on women. And the reason is people in these traditional conservative areas do not want their women going outside the houses where they can be watched by foreign men from overseas. So women are actually staying indoors even more. They are not going to weddings where they know a gathering, a big gathering that could be a target. So, and the weddings were the few places that they could actually go out and enjoy themselves. And there's a reason why weddings are targeted. Partly also is because in the Middle East and Central Asia, there's a long tradition of firing guns off in a celebration. So when these guns go off, the people in the drones pick it up and they're like, oh my God, it must be something nefarious. And so they send in the drones, they monitor. Oftentimes, they have hit drone, uh, the weddings, purely out of mistakes. Also, because it's a place where, quote unquote, terrorists or militants or whatever you want to call them also go to weddings and attend things, right? And so, therefore, they are most likely to be spotted at a time when their cousin is getting married. We're speaking with Prothap Chatterjee, author of Verax, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance. This is KPFA. I'm Mari Nakagawa with Frank Sterling, and we're going to be offering Verax as a gift to listeners who donate so we're talking a little about the impact of drones on local populations, but you also write in the book about the impact of drones on the operators and all the people involved in these strikes. And I think we often hear that from people who, who kind of accept the use of drones that they minimize damage, and at least we're not putting boots on the ground. But you sort of, how does your work and experience contradict this? So the 
Operators of drones, the people who use the surveillance technology in the U.S. military, are typically young members of the U.S. military, grunts, right? They're not officers. They're people who are straight out of high school who have gone into the military, particularly in rural and poor America, where uh, that is a surefire way of getting into college, uh, getting uh, veterans' benefits, and that sort of thing. So they typically don't have college degrees. They often have never traveled overseas. And when they're recruited, they sit down and it becomes their job to watch people on the other side of the world and make decisions of life and death. And over time, it becomes obvious to them, A, that the technology is, is inaccurate. They can see the quality of the imagery. They know what these people are up to because they watch them day in, day out. And they realize that many of these people are innocent or that they really don't have enough information to go, uh, go on. But when the order comes in to kill people, it doesn't matter what they say. The order comes ultimately from the president, from the CIA, or in a conventional war, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon. So, and they really actually, you know, if they, if they disobey orders, you know, they could be court-martialed, you know, they could be kicked out of the military, they would lose their access to these future benefits, et cetera. So they very rarely do that. But because they do these long shifts, 12-hour shifts, often, you know, at night, it's deeply traumatic to them. And so many of them suffer from PTSD. And I've uh, worked with probably eight or nine of them. Whistleblowers have come forward, told me about their psychological problems, about the problems of the technology. They guided me in my work and told me their stories. Um, but I also interviewed Army and Air Force psychologists. I actually wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about this. But the military is actually very aware of this, partly because the rate of people quitting the Air Force, the drone pilots, is so high that it's become a problem. The U.S. military at the time I did this research, which is now a couple of years ago, was training about 250 pilots a year and was losing 300. That's not sustainable, you know. They only have about 1,000 trained people who can uh, fly these planes. So the impact is not just on the the villages and the women folk on the ground, but it is also on the operators. Can, can I just add, and I think that we see this when um, in the past we featured National Bird and a documentary about drone pilots. And what happens is some of these sensor operators, they might um, have to witness the aftermath of some of these strikes and fly over and do like a body count. And they're really witnessing horrific scenes on the ground of what they and their comrades have caused. And I think this is where a lot of the PTSD comes into, you know, the central robbers, they get a real clear picture of maybe people picking up body parts and loading them into trucks or blankets and stuff like that. So this is some of the serious effect. This is typical of it. It's more of a dark side. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, it is. Uh, Soldiers have mixed feelings for a couple of reasons. One is they often join, you know, a feeling that they, it's their job to protect the nation and they feel patriotic, etc. And there are actually two jobs as a drone operator. One is to, quote unquote, track terrorists. Uh, but the other is also to watch over troops in the field. And so it's, you know, uh, makes them feel needed. And as you said, Frank, in every strike, they see these the aftermath of it, which is not true in a conventional battlefield where a soldier's fighting another soldier, or you're shooting, and then you go away, or even if you drop a bomb from an aircraft. Here, 
You have watched them for the last two years. You know they're probably innocent. And then if they die, you must watch the rest of it, of that story play out, which has never happened before. So that really, I think, plays havoc with your own mental well-being. Again, we're speaking with Prothap Chatterjee, author of the graphic novel Verax, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance. This is Full Circle. I'm Mari Nakagawa with Frank Sterling at KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley. And we actually have an excerpt from Verax where you illustrate one of these drone strikes. It begins with you, the protagonist, Prothap, sharing your research with co-author Khalil, who's also a character in the novel. The text from this drone strike is pulled directly from transcripts obtained by the ACLU through the Freedom of Information Act. Again, First Voice Apprentices narrate. A team of U.S. soldiers were searching for insurgents in Uruzgan at the crack of dawn. The military provided backup from the air with a Predator drone, a Warthog gunship, and two Kiowa helicopters. A drone crew in Nevada spotted three vehicles heading toward the soldiers and assumed that they were on their way to kill Americans. The remotely piloted aircraft mission was being conducted from a ground control station halfway across the world, Creech Air Force Base, Nevada, February 21st, 2010. Roger. Those two vehicles, they appear to be moving south. Our screeners are currently calling 21 military-aged males, no females, two possible children. When we say children, are we talking teenagers or toddlers? I would say about 12, not toddlers, something more toward adolescent or teens. We're receiving ICOM traffic. We believe we may have a high-level Taliban commander. Yeah, they called a possible weapon on a military-aged male, mounted on the back of a truck. Screener said at least one child near SUV. Horse crap. Where? I don't think they have kids out this hour. I know they're shady, but come on. Stand by and I'd zoom out in metadata. Sweet target. Lead vehicle on the run and bring the hellos in. Take a look at this one. It was hit pretty good. It's a little toasty. Whoa. <laughs> that truck is so dead. The thing is, nobody ran. Yeah, that was weird. Uh, have you been able to positively identify any individuals with weapons at this point? Task Force South is coming in, um, conduct a search, take pictures, or whatnot. Yeah, there's definitely no weapons on the guys in the middle vehicle. Let's keep looking at... whatever. We looked at all them, and I don't think that any of them had weapons. They're trying to surrender, I think. I personally wouldn't be comfortable shooting at these people. I believe possibly two of those, maybe three, were female. They wore bright colored clothing. He's calling them females? They said 21 males, not females. Dude, we watched these guys stop multiple times, and every time they were all wearing all black. 
and only afterwards did they ever see any killer. It's possible the women and the children never got out of the car at the stops. Be advised, we do have what looks to be three women and two children possibly trying to surrender. The investigation eventually concluded that the three vehicles they were tracking were just villagers on their way to the market. Reading this, it's clear that the imagery analysts suspected there were children in the convoy from the very start. Yes, the analysts did make the correct call if only the pilots and commanders had listened to them. The Obama administration seems to think that collateral damage is acceptable unless Americans and Europeans get killed. If only the analysts would speak out. Maybe they'd be willing to talk with you off the record. Hmm. I guess that's worth a try. That was an excerpt from Verax, the graphic novel on drone warfare and mass surveillance by investigative journalist Protap Chatterjee. And Protap joins us in studio. So in that clip, we just get a small glimpse of the amount of people involved in these strikes and the kind of miscommunications that can occur. That's right. A drone is operated by, well, the drone is actually flown by two pilots, one the person who launches it and then the person who takes over. It's launched close to wherever. So let's say you want to monitor people in Pakistan. The drone is typically launched from Afghanistan where the U.S. has military bases. So there's a drone pilot there who gets it in the air. Uh, once it's over the target, it is the controls are taken over by somebody typically in Nevada or California or New Mexico. Those two pilots simply fly the plane and even though they have access to the video feed, there's typically a pod of something like 14 imagery analysts who are watching every move, cataloging things, and analyzing. And they could be in other bases, like in the case illustration that we drew in Florida, uh, where they're watching everything. So for every two pilots, there are probably 10 imagery analysts that are going through this stuff on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, analyzing information and trying to figure out what's going on on the ground. So, so those are the people who I think are most impacted because to be a pilot, you have to be an officer. To be an officer, you have to have a degree, and therefore you are typically older. So the people that watch everything that happens on a daily basis are typically 18 and 19, straight out of high school. The people who fly the planes and make final decisions are older, are not watching this all the time, and so... The impact is greater because they're younger. Uh, the impact is greater because they're watching more. And unfortunately, they have no opportunity to change anything because they are literally the lowest person on the chain, maybe, maybe the second lowest after the mechanic who's repairing the aircraft. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. Thank you for tuning in tonight to this Pacifica radio station. That was another dramatic reading from the graphic novel Verax and after that we had excerpts from our interview with investigative journalist and author of Verax Protap Chatterjee and as you heard in that last excerpt uh, Protap foreshadows his um, interviews with drone operators and you can hear all that or read all about that in the book which we are offering as a gift tonight for a donation of $120 
You can also get the book by becoming what we call a sustainer at KPFA. That means you help sustain us with monthly donations of just $10 over a one-year period. And sustainers are really wonderful because they help keep us afloat throughout the year. So thank you so much to the folks who have already donated. We have people from San Mateo, Antioch, Woodacre, San Francisco, Berkeley. Yeah, and I got a couple more here also from Antioch and then from Oakland. And I got to say a big shout out to my dad, Frank Sterling Sr., who donated, my mom, Roberta Marotti, and my girlfriend, Sarita Blanco. Thank you all for donating very much. And we got Shani Smith. She donated to us. Thank you very much from Oakland. So if you happen to make the chance to donate right now, it's a chance to support on multiple levels. First and foremost, you're donating to this iconic radio station, KPFA. But at the same time, you are supporting this show, Full Circle, which is produced by apprentices of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. And in two more links to the chain, you are supporting independent investigative journalism and political art. This is your chance to get the graphic novel Verax. The place to go is kpfa.org. If you want to use the phone, the number is 1-800-439-5732, and that comes out to 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And again, the price of the book is 120 or the donation is $120, but any donation, any amount that you feel you can give at this time to help support us is so much appreciated. So the phone number again is one 800 439-5732-1800-HEY-KPFA or online at kpfa.org. So now back to the interview. Here I ask Protop about drone warfare and mass surveillance in the age of Trump. And Verax ends with another beginning, the Trump presidency, right? It comes all the way up to 2016. I'm wondering if you'd talk about that moment in writing the story and how drone warfare mass surveillance has evolved under Trump, if it so has. It's interesting to talk about it now because we are almost heading into two years of the Trump presidency. When we finished the book, Trump had only just been elected president. And I think two things that are interesting, actually, Trump has not changed that much. There are more drone strikes taking place. I mean, it's a question of scale. Uh, Trump, Obama multiply the number of drone strikes probably easily by 10. And if Trump has doubled them or quadrupled them, it is still not actually, it is a trajectory that is Mm -hmm. exponential. It's an upward slope. It's maybe not exponential. We are seeing a crackdown in whistleblowers. We are seeing a crackdown on the media. So it is all the more important we support whistleblowers. And it is even more important that we pay attention to the stories of people that are targeted by those strikes. Things have gotten worse and the technology is getting better. So there will be even more opportunities for the government to get our information. And we need to be vigilant. I mean, there, there are some bright uh, spots in the horizon in the sense that post-Snowden, a lot of the tech companies have taken privacy more seriously. So Facebook, uh, Gmail, etc. have turned on privacy by default. So it is less easy to hack into people's things. But of course, at the end of the day, if they want to turn over the keys to that information over the Trump administration, they can. Would they do that to the Trump administration? Very likely they are doing that as we speak. You were a producer at KPFA. Why do you think it's important to support the work that we do at KPFA? Well, I think in a time where the number of media outlets is shrinking, I mean, literally just a couple of days ago, 
the publisher of Newsday in, in New York literally slashed its news uh, workforce in half. We used to have Alternative Weekly in San Francisco, The Big Guardian, and that's gone. The Village Voice in New York, that's gone. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember a time when most major cities had two newspapers. Some have no newspapers now. Most of them only have one. So it is really important that we support public interest journalism and uh, radio where you can hear unfiltered voices of dissent, which is much harder when, you know, all you're seeing is like tweets or, or curated information in the New York Times where they're taking maybe some voices of activists and matching it up with voices of the government or corporations. So we really need independent journalism. And so I hope that listeners will support KPFA, which really kind of got me my start in, well, not in journalism, but certainly in radio back um, 25, maybe more years ago. So I, I really would urge you to, you know, go to the phone, support KPFA, and also support uh, nonprofits like CorpWatch, where I work. I do want to put a final plug in for CorpWatch. We cover these companies that sell the technology to governments. We have a website explaining this technology and the flaws in it. It's called killchain.org. And we'll have that link in our show notes, along with the link to the Verax website, veraxcomic.net. Correct. Protap, thank you so much for being with us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? That's all. Support, you know, whistleblowers, support independent journalism, and uh, fight for social change. Mm-hmm. I actually have one more, one last question. Do you have tape over your camera on your laptop? Welcome back to Full Circle here on Pacifica Radio, KPFA. That was the voice of investigative journalist and former KPFA producer Pratap Chatterjee speaking about the importance of independent journalism and the work we do here at KPFA. And we'll get you the answer to that last question of his about tape um, after a brief pitch. Yes. Do you have tape over your laptop? camera. Um, So if you believe in the transmission of important information such as leaked government secrets from places such as WikiLeaks, or if you support whistleblowers in our government letting us know what our leader, when our leaders are up to no good, please at this time support this radio station, KPFA, and this training program, the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. If you can, Right now, go to kpfa.org and make a donation. If you'd like to call, the number is 1-800-HEY-KPFA. That's 1-800-439-5732. And again, we're offering this book for a donation of $120, but any any amount is super appreciated. This book is by two highly respected and knowledgeable journalists and KPFA producers, the founder of Terra Verde, Protap Chatterjee and Khalil Bandib from Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. The number to dial again is 1-800-439-5732 or go online at kpfa.org. This book covers a wide range of topics, including the Snowden leaks in depth. And this was one of the most interesting parts of the book for me because we see through images how Snowden got in contact with Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald, all the precautions he took to make sure that he got this information to journalists he trusted. He meets with them in a hotel in Hong Kong carrying a Rubik's Cube, so they recognize him. We also get a look into Protop's meetings with his colleague, Julian Assange, who is about to be handed over to UK authorities. If you're listening to KPFA's Evening News the last hour, you heard that Assange may, may be extradited to the US, where he'll, he'll be put on trial for essentially doing his job as a journalist. 
And we also, the book also covers the drone program escalated under Obama, continued under Trump, routine botched drone strikes with high civilian casualties and mass surveillance, the links between our phones, social media, and the mass collection and analysis of our private information. So if you can at this time, let us, um, I want to let you again know how to donate. If you can, take a moment and go to kpfa.org. There you can donate, get yourself a copy of this unique graphic novel, Verax, The True History of Whistleblowers, Drone Warfare, and Mass Surveillance. And don't forget, that's for a donation of $120. And don't forget also that you could be a sustainer and you could pay over a year period, and that's only $10 a month. And if you can't afford $120 right now or even over a course of uh, 12 months, please think um, any amount is really appreciated. We also have all this KPFA gear from hats to socks. I'm wearing the socks right now. Frank forgot. He was I forgot my to, socks. Sorry, we were going to <laughs> we be a team. We were supposed to be a united front, but <laughs> I'm sitting here in my socks solo. But we have socks. We have shirts, sweatshirts. You can see all this on kpfa.org. Or if you'd like to talk with a human being, you can still call us at 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And we got just another minute or so here. I want to just tell you, what do we bring you as KPFA apprentices that no one else does? There's actually a lot. Some of the exclusive exclusive films that we brought to you were food chains, the actual voices of farm workers. How do we do that? We created our own voiceovers when there was sub when there were subtitles. Did anyone else do that at KPFA to bring you the voices of farm workers? No, that was us, the apprenticeship program. We brought you a place at the table that talked about food inequity and food justice, and we talked to folks right here in Oakland working for that food justice. We also brought you great voices when they mattered the most, such as recently three weeks ago when the city government of Concord was debating a possible request to have the Concord Naval Weapons Station become a detention center for immigrants. We brought you an interview with the mayor of Concord. Shout out to Dry Longsa Rising, Sharon Peterson for that. So can we get some clicks and calls for this work? We are people just like you and me getting training to bring you this information. So go to kpfa.org to call 1-800-439-5732. And I think that just about brings us to the end of tonight's show. Tune in next week. Well, first, thank you to all those that have donated. We got a lot of donations tonight, and we really appreciate it. Um, tune in next week from Sounds of the Malcolm X Jazz Festival from San Antonio Park in Oakland. Thank you to Miss M. Thank you to Darlene on the board, Sharon and Steve. Um, get ready, because up next is La Onda Bajita. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.